But it's interesting what it sounds like. It's like you've got to go all in. You can't just like put your toe in and then pull it back out again. You really need to jump in the pool because otherwise it messes up the kids. In this math mentoring moment, you'll meet Carol Edlin, a travel bug who entered teaching with a business degree, but slowly and surely began teaching math courses. What is she to do when your background is not mathematics and you're trying to make math moments that matter for all of your students? Stick around while Carol shows some vulnerability while discussing her lesson flops and will whittle away and reveal her real struggle. Cue up that music. Welcome to the Making Math Moments That Matter podcast. I'm Kyle Pierce. And I'm John Orr. We are two math teachers who, together, with you, the community of math educators worldwide who want to build and deliver math lessons that spark engagement, fuel learning, and ignite teacher action. Welcome to episode number 25, How Do I Avoid Lesson Flops, a Math Mentoring Moment. Are you ready, John? Oh, yeah. I can't wait. Let's dive into this episode with Carol while she shares some of her challenges in the math classroom, and she looks to reach every student in a school with high ELL and ESL learners with the Math Moment Maker community. It can be easy to pick an interesting-looking task and just try it in your class, but as you'll hear in this episode, Carol realizes that planning with intentionality is so important in order to ensure the task runs smoothly. Before we dive in, we have had over 100 founding members join the Make Math Moments Academy. Those educators who have already started sharing their past successes and challenges with each other. They've been learning with our brand new mini course titled The Concept Holding Your Students Back. So you too can eliminate the guesswork and stop throwing stuff at the wall and hoping something sticks. The Academy provides you with resources you can count on. Take a moment right now. Check out the Academy and see if it's a good fit for you. You can learn more at makemathmoments.com forward slash Academy. That's makemathmoments.com forward slash Academy. Okay, let's see if we can't help find some next steps for Carol to push her practice forward. So we are here with Carol Edlin, and we can't be more excited to chat with her. Welcome to the podcast, Carol. Well, thanks for having me. It's all our pleasure. We just want to start off with a couple of questions. We want to get to know you a little bit. We want the audience to get to know you. Can you tell us just a little bit about yourself? What do you teach? Where are you from? What's your teaching story? Well, I teach in San Diego at a middle school. I am actually not from here. I grew up in Colorado and moved here in my 30s when I started teaching. I didn't start out wanting to be a teacher. It was something that was a means to an end because I realized I wanted to travel. And the way for me to travel was to have my summers free. And I kind of like teaching. I have a degree in business and I was able to become a business teacher from the beginning and it was a lot of fun. I taught marketing and business law. And since I had enough math credits from my business education, I was able to sub in and take over some math classes when there was at the beginning of the year and high enrollment in the school that I used to teach at. So I kind of started in the math area from there. Because I wanted to travel so much, I was able to find a way to teach overseas. And I moved to Buenos Aires, Argentina in 1999 to teach at the American School of Buenos Aires. 
and I was hired to teach math. So I went down as a full math teacher and I was given geometry and algebra one and algebra two and international baccalaureate math studies. And I had never really studied that much math. So it was quite an eye opener. That story, I think, hits home with both of us. You know, teaching in Buenos Aires definitely sounds amazing. I myself, when I first started teaching, I moved down to the Caribbean and taught on the island of St. Martin for a few years. Oh, cool. Yeah. And like you said, mine was an American school, but I taught in an Ontario school, which was perfect for me being from Ontario. It was a very small private school there. And I did my first two years teaching there and teaching math. And actually, I taught business and math and physics and accounting. And and so I was the guy that did everything down there because the school was so small. Uh, Kyla, I think you got something similar, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It wasn't for as long as you both were abroad, but I had an opportunity one summer, I think it was my second year teaching to go and teach computer science, well, not computer science courses, but it was more like um, computer courses for business and photo editing and Excel and PowerPoint and all of those tools on a cruise ship for a summer. So yeah, that was a really cool experience. Sounds like party time. Yeah. Yeah, Well, I got, I got my traveling in my wife at the time was, we weren't married yet. We were just engaged to be married and she went to South Korea for the summer with a friend to uh, do some teaching English over there. So it was tough being away, but at the same time, it was a great experience to get to go and see all kinds of different parts of the world. So it sounds like traveling is in your blood. And just to be clear, it sounds like you might be teaching at the high school level. Maybe I missed that. Is that true? High school? I started as a high school teacher and I have a single subject, a California single subject credential in business with the supplementary in math. And what that does is allows me to teach up through ninth grade math, but I can't teach elementary school because I don't have the right credential. So I am stuck in the middle. I just came back to the States three years ago. And I've been teaching now for two years in a middle school. So I've taught sixth, seventh, and this year, eighth grade math. Oh, and what's your perspective there? Like, how is that turning out for you compared to, you know, some of the experience you may have had abroad in teaching some of the older grades? Yeah, it's a tough, (laughs) it's really tough. I miss the high school. I miss the maturity level of the high school students. And it's been a rough couple of years, but I've also been teaching in a rough couple of The two schools I've taught in are pretty rough schools. They're lower income. A lot of refugees are in the schools. The one I'm teaching in right now actually is more that way. Today, I just got a a child from, I can't even say the name of the country because he spoke so soft and he doesn't speak any English, but an African country. I have a lot of refugees, a lot of English language learners, and it's very different the age as well as just the circumstance, because in Argentina, I was teaching children of diplomats. So it was a very different dynamic. Sure, sure. I'm sure there's lots of learning so far and probably a lot of learning still to be had, I'm sure, when you're put into a very different situation. So interesting. So I'm sure we will come back to some of those pieces. We're wondering, as we ask most people when they come on the podcast, what is your most memorable moment about math class. And we say about math class because maybe it might be your math class experience as a student, or maybe it's from maybe when you were teaching. But what comes to mind when the word math class is said? Well, it's interesting because I thought about this question and it's kind of, I was a teacher and a student at the same time because 
because when I went to the international school and they told me I was teaching geometry and I did not do well in geometry in high school and I had not had a geometry class since high school. So I had to teach myself geometry. I was that teacher who was doing the lesson the night before I did every homework problem the night before I gave the kids the homework problem. And I taught it to myself as a 35-year-old woman, and I actually got it. It was the weirdest thing. I never got it in high school. It didn't make any sense to me in high school. I couldn't understand the theorems. I couldn't understand why we had to do what we had to do. And as I taught it to myself in Argentina, all of a sudden, everything made sense. It all fit. It all made sense. And I found an incredible joy in teaching it to the students. We did a lot of fun stuff. We did, you know, things, tessellations. And one of my favorite things was making a Christmas tree for the entry of the building of our high school using the Serpensky triangles. My administration bought into it and got me glue guns and got me green construction paper. And we made this huge tree. I don't remember how many levels it was. It was a long time ago, but it was really fun becoming a geometry teacher. Very cool. I want to commend you for for doing the work necessary. I know that sometimes it can be a challenge, even if I know that when I started in my career, I thought I understood the math through high school. But when I came to actually teach it, I remember myself doing a lot of that same process for those first few years where I felt like it was only a few days ahead of the kids and I wanted to make sure I understood it deeply. So I'm glad to hear that you did the work. It sounds like, you know, you put a lot of time and effort into that. And that's so important for us to really understand the content in order for us to be able to stand even the slightest chance of helping our students to understand it. Yeah, it was hard. I was single and I didn't have children at the time. So I had the time to put in, which is not the case today. But I'm glad I had the time and I'm glad I was able to do that. But what I think was just so interesting is that everything connected. And in high school, when I was learning it, it was seemed so arbitrary and so bizarre, just these theorems and postulates that didn't make any sense. But it helped me to learn that we learn the math at different time, at different ages. And I know that that's what's being talked about all the time now with Joe Bowler and a lot of these other people who, and you guys about it's not necessarily how fast you do it. Because somebody can be five minutes behind the next person. And maybe I had been five minutes behind in high school, but my teacher didn't give me that extra five minutes. And so it never connected. So it was really cool to think that your brain matures and your ability to learn mathematics also matures. I just want to stay on this just a little bit longer because it really interests me. Like when you said that you didn't get it in high school and you just gave it a couple of reasons, but I'm wondering if we can dive in on that just a little bit longer. Like what else do you think may have caused you not to get it when you were in high school other than the couple things you've just mentioned? You know, I don't know because I had my geometry teacher. She was one of my favorite teachers. I didn't get the geometry, but I liked her. So it wasn't like it was because I didn't like my teacher Yeah, I don't know. I don't have an answer for you on that one. And maybe it might be like you articulated very clearly that our brains all mature at different stages and all of our experiences are so different from birth to high school ages where all of those things impact where we are and our readiness and the prior knowledge we have to bring and even maybe some of the outside factors going on in our lives. Like, am I distracted by other things going on? Is there issues in my family? You know, there's so many things for students when we were students and also for the students in our classrooms right now. So really interesting. Thank you for sharing. We're wondering to get us started. Can we start off on a positive note with maybe some, like something that you feel has been going well for you 
over the last little while in your class. So maybe something that you've tried or maybe been reflecting on and feeling like you're seeing some changes there. Maybe you're not at the end of that journey, but you're seeing that you're heading in the right direction and that particular area? Well, I'm really struggling right now because actually I got very lucky this year. I was partnered up with another teacher who's teaching eighth grade math, who has been just a godsend to me and giving me resources. And we talk about what we're teaching every day and we work together and we use a flip chart is what it's called on our Promethean boards. And he really works with me to make sure that we're doing the same thing. And if I don't understand what the standard is and how we should go about teaching it, he's really there to help me. I feel very, very lucky to have him as a, it's not a co-teacher, but as the other counterpart of the eighth grade math department. I feel like this year has been a lot better because I'm used to this age group and kind of how to deal with the rules, which I was very lax on last year, but coming in and having a procedure and having a warm up and having the students understand how things are going or should be going every day. And it seems to be making things a lot easier. Whereas I think as a high school teacher, I was a little bit more laid back and wasn't as tough as I found I needed to be, which is where I struggle with these ideas of project-based learning and teaching using tasks because I'm afraid of letting the kids get off task or off of a topic and not being able to bring them back. And I don't know if it's the age group or me or the fact that I'm not really sure how to run these types of classes. Yeah, like there's definitely a huge difference when you go from one level, whether it's a grade level, but in your case, going from secondary or high school all the way back to middle school, we've got students at a younger age. There's different sort of procedures and norms that take place in classrooms. I know I can relate because I've spent the last couple of years formally coming from secondary from high school, and I now spend a lot of my time in K through eight. So I'm going into classrooms and it's like I I'm learning something new every single time I go in, do any type of co-teaching or actually delivering a lesson about norms and about structure and about, you know, things that I take for granted coming from secondary land. And those are definitely challenging. And it's great to hear that you've seen some successes in that area. So I'm wondering, can we go a little bit deeper with, you know, you'd mentioned like project-based learning and so forth. Can you help a folks listening in kind of get an understanding of like what that looks like or sounds like to you when you reference things like project-based learning or these activity-based sort of investigations that you mentioned earlier? Well, it has to kind of start from a little bit back. When I was in Argentina, we taught out of a book. I was not a trained math teacher, and so I had never really heard of standards. I left for Argentina in 99. So back, we just taught chapter one, chapter two, chapter three in order and every single lesson. And just like I remember hearing one of your earlier podcasts, you teach three lessons, then you have a quiz, then you teach the next three lessons, then you have a test in chapter two. And when I came back a couple of years ago, all of a sudden I'm presented with these standards and project-based learning, and I had not a clue. And last year I paid my way, my principal, I was lucky enough to have given me the three days of substitutes, but I got my own hotel, my own plane ticket, and paid the fee to go to the NCTM conference. And I just happened to stumble into Dan Meyer's How Good Lessons Go Bad, I think was the name of his seminar that he gave his presentation. 
And I saw this three-act math thing where he was talking about Girl Scout cookies and volume and the Nissan car. And, oh, my God, I got so excited. I was just, I thought, oh, this is what I want to do. This is how I'm going to get my kids excited. And I went to some other of the workshops, and I just had tons and tons of ideas. I took tons of pictures with my phone. I took tons of notes. I went back to the classroom in April. I tried that three-act bat lesson about the Girl Scout cookies and volume because that's what we were doing in seventh grade. And it flopped. Mm-hmm. And I, I didn't know how to do it. And so I've been trying to read as much as I can. Over the summer, I read a bunch of books. And that's how I found you guys. Because when I was at the NCTM, you know, I didn't know what Twitter was, really. It was something that, I don't know, the stars did and Donald Trump and whatever. But I never had gotten involved in Twitter. And so I got on to the Twitters of you all and of Dan and of Joe Bowler and of a few other ones that I can't think off the top of my head, trying to figure out how I can make these lessons engaged into my students and how I can incorporate it into my lessons so that they are excited and paying attention and wanting to learn this math. And that's where I'm stuck because I can't seem to make the jump from these tasks or these projects. And Hey, Math Moment Makers, Kyle here. And I've got just a quick message specifically for our district-level mathematics decision-makers out there. Do you feel like you're spinning your wheels when making district-level goals for mathematics programming from kindergarten through grade 12? Setting new goals each year only to find little to no real shift in pedagogical practice or educator content knowledge across the district as a whole? Take a moment to book a short call with our team so we can learn more about your specific district and educator learning needs in mathematics so we can assist you in taking the first step of many in the right direction. Visit makemathmoments.com forward slash district to book a web call with our team today. We have a limited number of spots for districts just like yours, so don't wait head to makemathmoments.com forward slash district and grab a spot in our calendar now. Yeah. I don't know if you listen to all the podcasts so far. Probably not. There's been a few. And there's one particular episode where we, I think, say exactly this story. I listened to one through four. I started to listen to five and I stopped. But today I was listening to five. So yeah, I do. You were talking about like, how do you make that transition into doing these kinds of things? And one of the things you guys mentioned was the preparation, but I still don't quite know how to prepare because kids started asking me questions and I didn't know how to answer them. And then I started feeling like, um, oh, I don't want to put myself in a position where I don't have the answer or even know how to find the answer. We were in that situation where we saw Dan and we took it back and it was a flop. And I think we've got a couple suggestions here for you, but I'd like to hear more about why you think it was such a flop. Like, I wonder if you could imagine or go back in your memory to that lesson and walk us through what that looked like. And I know you'd have to be really brave to say that out loud, but we're wondering what that looked like for you. You said a couple things about questions that kids had, but I'm wondering with that particular lesson that you first tried, if we could hear what that sounded like, I wonder if we can give you some tips. Well, honestly, the Girl Scout cookies, I guess that one was not as 
bad. I mean, I was able to get through it. I think what ended up happening is I didn't know what to do after we looked at it. And I, I ended up giving them how you find the volume because I didn't understand that they had to figure that out on their own. And I was like, well, how are they going to get this if I don't tell them that it's width times length times height? And so I gave them that and we did the estimating, but I probably after listening to your other podcast, yeah, I should have said, you know, some of them said two. And I was like, okay, that's ridiculous. You know, of course it's not two. And then, you know, one of them, like you had said, it said a million. I'm like, okay, well, that's also ridiculous. But I didn't, now after listening to you, I'm like, I could have said, let's take a risk and let's see how close we could get and let them continue with it. But after we got done looking at the three different videos, I think there were three in that one, I didn't know how to give them practice problems, for example. I didn't know how to get them to do some work to then be able to, I don't know if I'm supposed to be giving practice problems or if that was enough for them to learn it or if I had to do, bring in other resources. But the other one that I did with my accelerated sixth grade class was there was one where you had a guy standing in front of a wall with a bunch of dollar bills. Did mm-hmm. you guys seen that one? Yeah. And then they pull back and then they pull back again. And you have this room covered with dollar bills in this museum. And so I printed out the floor plan and the blueprints and I divided the kids up. And then we kind of just didn't know what to do. We did some division and it just, I got stuck. I said, I don't really know how to proceed after we divide. We figure out what is the distance between the dollars and then you divide it and then what? I mean, it just kind of didn't. I didn't know how to have that flowing into the next part, I guess. Does that make sense? Totally does. Totally does. And yeah, this is, again, you know, we're feeling your pain because we know what that is like. Um, I'm wondering when you selected, so for example, I know what I did when I came across Dan's material and then later some of the others that are great. Uh, Dane Euler for high school is great. So many others are out there. And what I tended to do is like I grabbed that lesson that was modeled in that session because I had, I guess, probably twofold. Like, first of all, I felt comfortable with it because I just did it. So I sort of knew it. Uh, It's kind of felt like I had planned my lesson. And then secondly, it was like I didn't have to go like digging for something and I just sort of wanted to try it out. So that's probably what happened with the Girl Guide cookie um, example. You know, you saw it and you were like, all right, let's try this out and let's, you know, take a risk and see how things go. I'm going to butcher the name of the task with the dollar bills on the wall, but I'm picturing Robert Kaplinsky's site, but I could be wrong. No, I think it's um, a Dan site. I think it's a Dan. Is it a Dan one? I think it's yeah. Dan. I don't remember yeah. where I found yeah, it. We'll double check and put it in the show notes yeah, for we'll sure. Yeah, we'll dig it out. For sure. We'll dig that out. But with that particular problem, like, I guess what motivated you to want to try that one particular task on that particular day? Well, I was looking for problems that were based on volume and area. Volume I used for my seventh grade and area is what I wanted to use for my sixth grade just because that's part of our standards. So I Googled or I went through looking for something that matched with that standard. And that's how I came up on that. I also thought it was cool. And I thought the kids would find it was cool. And so, um, of course, none of them believed it. I believed it when I saw it, but they were like, no, this is fake. This is no way. (laughs) So it was hard for them to buy in because they didn't think it was real. 
But that's how I found it was just kind of going through, I think it must be Dan's that I have a huge Excel worksheet in my Google Drive that I must have downloaded from him. Mm-hmm. He's and got it's one of got those. tons of different standards listed next to it. That's how I found it. We keep saying this, but that's probably what I did first too. It's like I found his spreadsheet and I scanned it for what I was looking for. And I think that's what we all do. We're like, we're looking for a new lesson or a lesson to address a learning goal that we're looking at or a topic and we go and we find one. We're like, okay, I'm wondering, what did you do next? You found this lesson online and then what? Then I downloaded the pictures and the video. I downloaded the blueprints to the museum space. And there was a copy of a dollar bill on a grid so they could count how many millimeters or centimeters it was. It was done in your type of measurements, (laughs) not in the U.S. measurements. And so each kid got one of those. I said to the kids I wanted them to group up and to try and figure out how many dollar bills would fit in this room. And we talked about the columns because there's a couple columns in there, the doorways that wouldn't be covered. They had They all went and found the area of all of the spaces and found the area of the dollar bill. And then I didn't know where to go from there. I was like, okay, well, I guess that's what we found. And it wasn't the million dollars that it said it was the way the kids figured it out. We didn't get even close to a million. And I just said, all right, we're done because that was all I knew how to do from there. I don't know if I answered your question all the way. No, I think no, you did. No, that's great. Okay. Yeah, no, I, I think that's great. That's helpful for us to kind of get an idea of where you're coming from when you selected that task. So you had a learning or a standard cool. in mind. Yeah. What in your mind did you feel like your students might be bringing with them to that lesson? Like when you entered that particular lesson, was there certain things that you felt like students sort of had in their tool belt that they might be able to access Or was it more like, let's just see what they have with them? Because, you know, I do that sometimes as well is kind of like, let's see what they've got and, you know, use it almost like a diagnostic. What was kind of going on there? These kids were accelerated sixth grade and they're top, top, top kids. I remember doing some of the, which one doesn't belong? And I would put the numbers up. I wouldn't do graphs, but I'd, you know, there'd be a three, a nine, a eight, and a 17 or whatever. And I had these kids last period and I do it in all of my classes. This was my only accelerated class. And these kids in the accelerated class would come up with things that none of the other classes had come up with. I mean, in the other classes, they'd repeat, I'd hear the same thing over and over. Well, this doesn't belong because it's got two digits or something like that. But these kids would come up with amazing things, things that I had never even thought about why this wouldn't belong. And they're just top-notch kids and their ability to think and to explain and to do mathematics. So when I saw this, I didn't know what they really had, except for I knew that they would be able to figure it out just because of the way they were able to figure out all the problems I put in front of them. Interesting. Yeah, for sure. For sure. So it sounds like these students are, you said, accelerated. So, you know, clearly they have a lot going on there in order for them to be in that particular program. Do you feel like maybe there might be some students there who are maybe not so eager to take risks, like maybe feeling like they're kind of dependent on being sort of pre-taught before they attempt something. Like uh, I know that for me, for years, I used to teach a lesson and then kind of like scaffold up 
until I got to like word problems. And then the lesson fell apart when kids were like, oh, now I can't do these word problems. Like, do you think there might be some of that there or any other factors like that? Are you feeling from maybe the classroom culture or maybe what they believe math class should be? In that particular class, a little bit, but not so much because they were just so eager to learn. But like for an instance, in the class that I have right now, so I'm teaching a regular common core as we common core eighth grade. And we're just finishing up being able to graph a line from slope intercept form and a little bit of a standard form. And we're starting next week to do systems of equations. And these kids are not the kind of kids that are wanting to if I say, okay, what do you notice? I don't think they're going to participate that much because they're not wanting to put themselves out. They're not going to, what do you wonder? Nothing. Why are we doing this? You know, that kind of thing is what I'm going to get from the kids I have today. And so I would like to figure out a way to bring in something fun like this to do systems of equations, but I have not no clue because these kids from last year, they would do anything I put in front of them because they were just so eager to learn math. The kids this year, not so much. I've definitely uh, been in that situation also. For me, it comes down to setting that or bringing that culture on a regular basis. And what I mean by that is, is I think when I first started doing these tasks, I viewed them as like one-off tasks. Like I I would do it. I'm like, okay, here's that great test going to fit right in here. And we'll normally teach the lesson and normally kids will do their work. And then, you know what, I want to make them engaged on this one idea because I found this great lesson. So I'll put it in here. And so when I do that, my students react in a way that it's like, I don't first, I don't know what's going on because this is not the way class normally runs. So that's like a natural reaction to be like, okay, wait, what's going on here? And then they're not sure what to do. And I think what happens is when we view it that way, they don't get used to that being something that's allowed in class. Like, so I guess to elaborate more on that, that if I've always kind of just taught my lesson and gave the examples and asked them to do some practice questions, which can be fine. But then when I throw the task in there, it's almost like this, all of a sudden there's now student voice involved and kids will be resistant to give that voice if there's one, it's not consistent in the class. Like if it's all of a sudden we're doing this, what do you mean? I don't usually do this. And then the other, it's like, how is the atmosphere so that if I say something, will it be well received? Like there's definitely that kind of culture that has to exist. And I've been in situations like that with other teachers where I go into the class and they're trying that lesson that just they're just putting it in there as a one-off kind of lesson and it just flops hugely because it's not a regular thing. And to go back to like when we first did it, that's what happened. It flopped majorly because we were just sticking it in in one spot and thinking this is going to be the savior of this particular learning goal. But because it wasn't part of our culture, it just doesn't hit the mark the way, you know, you see it in the workshop or you see it on the internet. And one thing that we've done to address this is to do more of that culture building than we used to. So for example, like one thing that I do now on a regular basis is I spend 10 to 15 minutes at the beginning of class, maybe 10 more, like 10 minutes at the beginning of class doing small versions of this. Like you brought up which one doesn't belong and we'll do one of those a week where I'm asking students to turn and talk to each other about which one doesn't belong and they have to make a choice. And then now we voice those out loud. So they're getting used to, and those are great because you can't be wrong uh, as long as you have a reason. So like you are 
definitely bringing that culture of student voice into your room. And the students get used to saying stuff out loud that they know, one, they can't be wrong and everyone has an opinion to that. Another thing we do is like, we'll do an estimation 180 task at the beginning of class. And I do this at all levels, high school, all the way down to, you know, they can go down to very low levels. And I do the same thing. It's like, which too high? What's too low? What's your best guess? And in, in the first like five times I do that, everybody has to say what their guess is. And, in, and if you make it part of your regular routine, then when it's time to do the notice and wonder, it's not a shock to their system. And I think that they will adapt to that. Sometimes I'll have a tough class and that tough class is like, oh, and if it's one of the first times, you're going to get some kids that are like, what's going on here? And that's good. Their notice and wonder, right? And I write those on the board. Like, if I say, what do you notice and wonder, turn and talk to your partner and they do that. And then when we, it's time for us to say them out loud and the kid's like, well, why are we doing this? That's my wonder. I'll write that on the board. And the kid's like, wait a minute. I didn't get the reaction that I thought it was going to get from the teacher. That goes on the board. And then the next time we do it, it's not such a big deal. And they know that because I definitely, I love that question. That question, I go right back at the end of the lesson when we solve the problem and we brought out the learning goal, made it explicit, we can go right back to that student and say like, why did we do this? Like, what do you think now? And so I think the biggest thing is making, like changing your classroom culture so that it's accepting of all of these kind of techniques that are new. I'm not saying you're not doing that already. I'm just saying that I think that can help for sure. But it's interesting what it sounds like. It's like, you've got to go all in. You can't just like put your toe in and then pull it back out again. You really need to jump in the pool because otherwise it messes up the kids because if you're not doing it on a continuous basis, it's not productive. Hey there, Math Moment Makers. Are you a dedicated listener? Like I'm talking, have you been listening for a couple of months, maybe even a couple of years? Well, if you haven't taken a moment to leave us a rating and review on your favorite podcast platform, it would mean so much to us. It'll take you under one minute uh, so that you can help more educators see and experience the Making Math Moments That Matter podcast. Uh, do us this huge solid. Uh, we thank you from the bottom of our hearts. And uh, here is today's episode. It becomes a guessing game, right? Of like, okay, like what's today going to be like? And this is exactly what we did. Like we're right there with you. I would try, you know, once a unit to do a three act math task and I'd get all geeked out about it. I was excited and it would be like, huh, that didn't really go over too well. And, you know, and I missed a lot of pieces, like the whole culture piece John talked about. But then there's also a piece that I wanted to mention as well, which may or may not apply to your situation where like when streaming or, you know, we call it streaming in, in Ontario here, but or tracking or different placement of students is going on. Like if you're dealing with students who tend to be the quote unquote math kids, right? The ones that are the stronger ones, or we call it a rich program here or gifted programs or whatever it might be. You're now dealing with a group of students who have been kind of put on this pedestal and, and maybe rightfully so because they have lots of prior knowledge and, you know, they're, they're, they're quite intelligent. But in reality, though, sometimes they can have an even more challenging time trying to build into 
this culture that John's describing. And part of the reason is because they're scared to be exposed that maybe I'm not as smart as I thought, right? I've been told that I've been smart against what, you know, the research from Carol Dweck and growth mindset and all the language around trying to push students and promoting students and celebrating their successes through effort instead of through smarts, like it's something that I was born with. And Joel Bowler talks about those things as well. This could be really, really challenging for those students to kind of tear down that wall, that barrier to be open and be okay. Because a lot of times too, if I'm doing a three-act math task and I'm truly asking them to notice and wonder without me sort of setting the stage and saying, hey, today we're going to solve ratios and here's a task we're going to do. It's sort of like, well, there's nothing to notice and wonder anymore. So by trying to build that culture and making math class a place where we throw out ideas and we support each other and we're not judging each other based on what we say and the predictions that we make, even if my prediction is off like significantly, it's like we accept those predictions and we try to unpack like why that person might have came up with that prediction. So this could be something for you to kind of think about. And I know in my experience, some of my more strong students tend to push back hardest, at least when I started. So that was just a personal experience. It might've just been a fluke, but I'm wondering if maybe there might be something to it for you as well to at least have it in the forefront of your mind. Yeah, no, I agree with you. It's interesting. I heard you say something about that on one of your other podcasts, how the students who usually get the A who have learned the trick of, you know, memorize the formula and remember the questions that you put in your homeworks or in your classwork so that then they can use those if they memorize that or they know how to do it, then they can pass the test and they get their A's. And they push back a lot when you did these kind of different three acts or or the notice and wonder kind of thing. And it was funny because I was thinking about this when I played a game with my, we call it step up, but it's more like a remedial math class, a step up math. And I played cannibals and missionaries with them on the computer. Do you, do you all know that game? No. Can you uh, yeah, fill no, us in a little bit? It's a logic game. You have three cannibals and three missionaries who come to a river and they have to cross the river on a raft. Two people at the most can be on the raft. It cannot be without a person. It can't come back without a person. You have to get all of the six people onto the other side and you can never have more cannibals than missionaries or the cannibals will eat the missionaries. So you have to figure out how to get everyone across. And I have a couple of math students who are very good. They do very well in my class. They're A students. Well, they got so irritated and so upset that they could not figure this out within a couple of minutes. It took a while. Everyone pretty much got it, or I wouldn't say everyone, but I'd say by the end of the period, 75% of my students got it. But the ones that are the A students were angry. They were angry before five minutes were up because they didn't get it and they wanted to get it now. And I didn't give them the answer and I made them keep working and they were pissed and frustrated. And one of them closed the computer and said, I'm not going to do it. And it was really, it was very <laughs> interesting watching the behavior. But he opened it up again and he finally got it. But oh my goodness. I have a very similar experience. I had a problem that I've used with students as young as grade five. And I gave it to some grade 11 
IB students. And I was not there. It was sort of through the grapevine, passed it on to an IB teacher. And they challenged their students. And literally, they were saying how the problem was dumb and doesn't make any sense and blah, blah, blah. And meanwhile, like the day prior, I was in a grade five class. Kids were rocking it. They obviously didn't go nearly as far as we would with a grade 10 or 11 class. Um, but in reality, the kids in the grade five class solved it less efficiently, but they were on task, rocking it. And, you know, the students gave up so quickly. And again, I feel like there's that pressure to know it fast. You know, like we have that culture of math is about answers and doing things quickly and not making mistakes and all of these things that, you know, we want to make sure that we try to turn around for our students. So that's a big piece. But then the last piece that I want to share before we start talking about maybe some next steps and maybe uh, some reflecting is after we got our classroom cultures going, and I say going because it's never done, like you're constantly trying to build that culture and make it stronger and stronger and you know more supportive and all of those things. But what we realized after some time is like we were feeling better about the culture, kids were participating, we were getting some buy-in in this type of teaching approach. But we realized that the same kids who were struggling prior to us doing this were still struggling when it came to actually doing the math and like doing the sense making. So they were stuck or giving up. And what we realized is that we did not spend nearly enough time on the intentionality of the tasks that we were using. So we were picking our standard or our curriculum expectation, as we call it here in Ontario, we would pick that volume of a, you know, cylinder. And, you know, we would pick that and then we would do the task, but we didn't really pay enough attention to like, what were we hoping the kids would be able to pull out of that particular task, that particular lesson? What were we going to consolidate? And like, what did they have or what did they need in order for them to be able to access that task? So those were things like big, big wonders, and it's something we still work on today. It's not like it's an overnight uh, solution. But once we sort of, that got on our radar, uh, we started to think more about it, reflect more, plan more before our lessons, and we were seeing significant changes in the ability of some students to be able to actually tackle the math. So that was something I wanted to make sure that we, you know, sort of threw out there as well, just for anyone listening who might have similar issues and maybe they're getting that classroom culture going, but they're just feeling like, you know, the wheels are still spinning, but now maybe somewhere else. So hopefully that's helpful. I, it's funny. I never, I didn't know how to plan, so I didn't. <laughs> so, <laughs> right. I mean, it was, yeah. all right, well, here's the lesson. I, I even, I think I, is. did you guys do the Kit Kat 3X? I did do a Kit Kat on fractions and adding yeah, subtraction. Yeah. Yep, yep. Yeah. So I did that one and I had no idea how to plan for it. So I just started showing the videos and I did that in my step up class this year and I got a little lost and I wasn't really sure where to go because I didn't know how to plan for it. I think that is a key and it's something that I'm still, I have to think about what they're going to say. And that's the part where I get lost. How am I going to know what they're going to come up with? And, but I do think that that's a very important part because without it, any of these that I have tried, the Kit Kat, the Girl Scout cookies, the dollar wall, you know, those are all 
ones that I think if I could have prepared better, but I think that's where I'm probably going to need most of my help. That was one of the things I think that has helped me the most is realizing that if I'm going to go to the internet and I'm going to choose one of Dan's tasks or one of Andrew Stadell's tasks from their spreadsheets or one of Kyle's tasks, some of those, like I know when I go to Kyle's site, tapintoteamminds.com, Kyle is really great at giving you a walkthrough on what to expect, what that might look like in his classroom, which is like half the planning right there. And some of the other sites might just show videos when you get there. So one of the the biggest things that, that helped me was I would do the problem myself for sure. And when I would do the problem myself for sure to see what I would do to solve that problem. But like what Kyle said is you want to write out solutions that you think your students will do based on the information or the knowledge they have coming into that. So if they don't know anything about volume yet, and you're doing the volume question, you're thinking, okay, well, how would they solve this without volume? So you might think they can't so that you're ready for that so that you can step in and go like, you might've sparked their curiosity and got their attention to go like, I want to solve this problem, but I don't know how yet. I wish I had a way to do it. And then you can step in and go, I was prepared for this moment and now we're going to bring out this build into the idea of where volume of a prism comes from. And so then you can explicitly go through that with your students and then you can turn back to the problem and go like, now let's use it to solve this problem. Or it might be they have some, like if you're working with rates and ratios or, you know, you said you were in a linear relations, like they might have some inkling on like how to use slope to graph the line, but not have any formal techniques yet. And so when you plan to do a lesson like that, you're going to map out what you think they might try as a solution. And you might have four to five different ways they might try that, or maybe two. But the fact that you've planned that piece is when you see that from your student who's trying that, you prepared for that so you can direct them where to go next. And like what Kyle said, we have this learning goal in mind we want to get to so that you can, when you see those solutions, you've also planned like, what are your moves next? Like if you see a solution that it's not quite there, how are we going to move those students towards that learning goal we want to bring out? So I think writing out those solutions in advance definitely helps me be ready for what the students are going to do. And it also helps me plan some of those possible questions. Like you said at the very beginning that sometimes kids bring up questions and it makes us feel uneasy because we're not ready to answer those questions. And I think the more planning you can do about what the solutions might look like can help you with that too. And also planning for the end, like you want to plan, like, where do you want to go ultimately? And you want to get there either that period or maybe you're planning for just cover over a couple periods. But I think that explicit planning is one of the most helpful things for using these types of lessons. Definitely. I'll try that on this next one. Awesome. 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 Yeah. And uh, planning, John and I know now, uh, we wish we knew it a long time ago, we realized that that's probably the most important part. And again, the biggest miss for us. And we do spend a lot of time on that in our online workshop. So if you haven't checked out the four-part lesson series that we have online, make sure you check that out. And then in the full workshop, we have a whole module on planning. So you know, that is an option as well. If anyone out there is sort of struggling with the same thing, that's a place you might be able to go to, you know, dive a little deeper there beyond uh, what we were able to address today. But at this time, we're wondering if we can get into the reflection portion of this conversation. And we're wondering if you can imagine your math class like three months from now, 
if you were to make some changes, maybe some changes that you've heard from this conversation, like what are you hoping that your math class would look like? And then maybe we can go into maybe some takeaways that you might be able to try to put into practice now, then maybe some that you might still need to do some reflecting on to put in later. Well, it seems silly, but I mean, what I'd love to have it look like is, you know, the kids working on interesting problems where they're engaged and they're excited and they're learning and I'm still covering the standards so mm, that I right. don't get in trouble with my sure, admin. Sure. Yeah, for yeah. sure. I mean, yeah, that instead of just worksheet after worksheet, um, or writing in our interactive notebook, which is something I actually really think is cool. That was something mm, that didn't exist cool. before I was back in the States. So yeah, I would like to see that engagement. I'd like to see them being able to learn and do fun stuff at the same time which they're not doing right now. Right. Those are some good ambitions there for sure. We're wondering also from this conversation, like what would be a big takeaway from you? Like we talked about a lot of things here, a lot of big ideas, a lot of specifics too, but what would be a big takeaway from this conversation for you in particular? I would like to find a project, a project, a task, something to hit system of equations. And we have to do testing next week, uh, state testing. So I have next week to plan to then start implementing the week after. And so the takeaway is the planning is really to, I am kind of lucky. I have a ninth grade son, so I might put him to work to be my guinea pig <laughs> to come up with <laughs> ideas, you know, to him, for him to say, this is where he might go with it. And so I can come up with some different strategies or, you know, know the question or the answers to possible questions and the planning of it. Right on. Yeah, that would be great. And, you know, off the top of our mind, we've got a few for systems of equations. I know Andrew Stadel has basketball shots. We'll put that in the show notes. I've got a couple as well. One that I tend to use for system of equations is the detention buyout which is kind of a quirky situation where three students get a bunch of different t detentions and the administrators are giving three different options to buy out of detention and the students have Ooh. to determine, yeah, to have to determine which is the best buy for each. It's a fun one. Uh, yeah, for each student. And then also the Counting Candy sequel. Um, so we'll put all three of those in the show notes. But our challenge to you would be if you do pick one of those, or maybe you find something else, is to kind of take that task and really tear it apart yourself and try to solve it. We like to try to think about solving it in as many ways as you possibly can. And it can be very challenging to try to put your mind in the minds of your students and to try to think of like, I would like sometimes to think about a student who tends to maybe come up with some interesting or different or maybe peculiar unordinary solution strategies, like what would that student maybe be thinking? And then maybe also thinking about a student who tends to struggle a little bit more, like what's that student's access point to the task? What might I be able to do? What questions and prompts might I be able to sort of have ready for that student or maybe even like warm up activity prior to introducing this task to get them thinking, not pre-teaching, but to bring out some of that prior knowledge so that, you know, they have a little bit of that leaping point and are able to tackle that task. Is that a challenge that you'd be willing to accept? Oh, for sure. 
Awesome sure. stuff. Awesome stuff. Uh, well, we're wondering if it's okay with you, we would love to maybe follow up with you uh, on the podcast, maybe six to nine months from now to see how things are, are moving along a little bit of accountability there for you so that, you know, we can kind of touch base again. Obviously you're more than welcome to touch base with us through email or Twitter or Facebook, however you choose, but to get us back on the show and kind of see where you're at with that classroom culture and kind of building that intentionality into your planning. Would that be something that you'd be open to coming back on? Yeah, that sounds great. Six to eight months gives me a lot of time. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. No pressure. Oh, in, in between. Yeah. And it's a slow process for sure. You know, it's, you know, take a little bit at a time. I think the thinking is the most important part here. It's not like the physical doing, but the thinking and reflecting, those are the big pieces where I think you're going to see the biggest, the the most significant difference. And hopefully the podcast episodes that are coming out every week will be something that, you know, you can put your earbuds in, sort of kind of build on some of the things that we were chatting about and what we'll be chatting with some future guests as well. So. Well, you guys get to walk with me in the morning, so that's hmm. that's a good. That's oh, where great. I get my I, podcast. I need on the my exercise. Walk. Yeah, oh, I, 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 I got to get up there and do some stuff. Uh, Carol, we want to thank you for joining us. I know that every time we talk on this podcast, I get a lot of great information to take back to my classroom too, from you and from Kyle. And we just want to thank you for joining us here. And I guess we wish you all the best luck back in the classroom. Thank you very much. Appreciate all the help. Well, there you have it. That was Carol Edlin from San Diego, California. We're looking forward to checking back with her to see how she's incorporated her biggest takeaways from this call over the next six to 12 months. Me as well, John. You know, I was really impressed with how far Carol has come considering she's entered the profession with a business degree, not a math degree, and then began teaching mathematics at the high school level. She then managed to figure things out and then moved down to middle school. And it sounds like she's well on her way to getting things sorted out there as well. In order to get better, we must all be willing to do the work necessary to better understand the content in order to be the best teacher we can be. And despite the fact that she's doing the work, she still acknowledges the fact that there's always work to be done. So hats off to Carol for wanting to continue to do more and get better at this thing we call teaching. So lifelong learner there. It's been a pleasure having a chat with Carol today. This was another Math Mentoring Moment episode with many more to come where we will have a conversation with a member of the Making Math Moments That Matter community like you who is working through a challenge and together we will brainstorm ideas and next steps to help overcome it. If you want to join us on the podcast for an upcoming Math Mentoring Moment episode where you can share those big math struggles, you can apply over at makemathmoments.com forward slash mentor. That is makemathmoments.com forward slash mentor. In order to ensure you don't miss out on new episodes as they come out each week, be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast platform. Also, if you're liking what you're hearing, please share the podcast with a colleague and help us reach an even wider audience by leaving us a review on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, or whatever platform you are listening to right now. Show notes and links to resources from this episode can be found at makemathmoments.com forward slash episode 25. Again, that is makemathmoments.com forward slash episode 25. Well, until next time, I'm Kyle Pierce. And I'm John Orr. High fives for us. And high fives for you.
if you are a district leader of mathematics, a math coach, a math curriculum coordinator, a superintendent and principal, getting teacher buy-in for effective math teaching practice is top of mind. And plans only go so far. You can make you know detailed plans and, and carefully designed goals with clear objectives and key results that are measurable. But that can feel like it all falls flat if we can't engage our teachers in the work. Working with teachers who do not want to change their teaching practices is one of the most frustrating and challenging parts of our job. How do I help teachers engage in effective teaching practices when they keep pushing us away? If you can't reach the tipping point in mass adoption of effective mathematics teaching strategies, then it's, it's likely we won't see student improvement in mathematics. We have a free training uh, an accompanying workbook for leaders of mathematics like you. Uh, the, math, the Make Math Moments team, myself, John, and Kyle walk you through our four-stage process uh, we use with district partners to create clear, measurable, sustainable PD action plans, but more specifically on how to also get teacher buy-in so that it drives student engagement. So step one, register for this free training, get your planning workbook, um, and then watch the training. Schedule some time on your calendar so you can watch it and go through the workbook after completing that workbook, you're going to have a clear, measurable vision, action plan for mathematics to get more teacher buy-in, but also be able to hit your goals for the 2024-2025 school year. So head on over to makemathmoments.com forward slash four stages to start this free training.